Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What happens when professional law enforcement goes head-to-head with a poltergeist? What happens when a lifelong belief system is smashed in one day? Where do you turn? Welcome to the one... Uh, sorry, the... 1,025th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you from WOON AM FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and on YouTube. That has that was Ben and Paul Eno and I'm Matt Moniz here to help things along. Paul is with us, too, coming via live Skype. Hello, everyone. Over the years, we have spent many hours on this show talking about my experiences working with Ed and Lorraine Warren, particularly in the now famous Lindley Street Poltergeist case of 1974 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. But we have never been able to bring you anyone else who was any closer than a huge crowd outside the house. Today, that changes. Officer Joseph Tomek was one of the first people I met when Ed Warren and I walked into that little bungalow in the early afternoon of Sunday, November 24th, 1974. <laughs> Over the past year, Joe and I have become reacquainted and have spent time together. I continue to be impressed with his integrity and his quest for the truth. Now, after nearly 50 years, Joe Tomek, now retired and living far from Bridgeport, appears on the radio to share his remarkable experiences. So, Joseph Tomek, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hey, guys. um, Glad to hear you. Happy to have this occasion to speak to you. And the other people in Bridgeport and uh, others um, throughout the world who may be listening. Well, it's it's honestly it's historic to have you with us, and we really appreciate you taking your time to be with us. And we'll 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 I, I know it probably doesn't feel like it to you, Joe, but <laughs> to us it is. So we'll 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 get right to it. So so Joe, as you know, this is has been called the best documented poltergeist case in history. So please. Tell us about your experiences on Lindley Street uh, on those days in 1974, and uh, we'll we'll ask you a few questions from there. So let's just start with with the case. Well, back then uh, I was take it was a Sunday morning, and I was taken out of my normal car, a one man car, and put in a two man car with my partner at that time was Carl Lianzi. That was a Sunday morning, and. Uh, Nothing really that much is supposed to happen on Sunday mornings. Well, anyways, uh, about uh, 11 o'clock in the morning, time for us to have our second cup of coffee, the call came over the radio, the police radio, uh, sent us a detailed answer to call on uh, Lindley Street. And uh, we were sort of upset. That's not really our post. That's the cards. Should have been the police car next to us. Anyways, uh, we went over there and uh, they gave us very little information over the radio just to go to that address 
and see the woman uh, who would answer the door and she would explain to you the reason we were sent there. Again, no information, what kind of case it was and so forth, and uh, rang the doorbell and she answered it and she says, oh, thank God you're here, we need your help. And I said, sure, no, no problem, what's the matter? She says, well, follow me. And uh, at the, apparently at this time, like I said, we didn't know what type of case it was, and she assumed we had already been told by this dispatcher what type of case it was, and, well, we knew nothing. So uh, I kind of followed her, and the car at this time was still waiting out on the, the front porch. And while she was leading me to the kitchen, I noticed on the other side of the kitchen uh, that her husband and uh, a little child not a little child, a child was sitting in there apparently waiting for us to come in. Well, anyways, she starts leading us to the kitchen and I noticed there was a television set mounted to one of the walls there and as we came in, the television, first of all, came off the, the, the drawer or whatever it was mounted on, came off, sort of floated through the air very slow and stopped in front of my face a few inches away from me. Now, I was kind of stunned at this point, didn't know what to say, but thinking, oh, this has still got to be part of a come on or something. Anyways, it came there, sat in front of my face, did a little dance, and then suddenly fell to the floor. Uh, well, she says, well, stuff like that always happens here. And, oh, well, still didn't know what it was on thought it was part of a, like a come on or something. I picked it up, it was still working, and put it back on the shelf. Anyway, she led me at the other end of the hallway to the, to the kitchen. There was a, uh, her main bedroom, I guess. And she brings me in there, and the, the room is just torn apart, like all the drawers and closets torn out and emptied on the floor, the clothes in the closets torn up, uh, uh, the bed torn apart, I mean, you actually half pulled off the bed, this is a king-size bed, too, and uh, she says, this always happens, there. you fix it up, it's always happening again, I'm, I know, you got to help us, well, I said, well, no problem, I, this is exactly what anybody's home who ever been burglarized, especially during the daytime or so, where they go in and search everything, every place, looking for money, jewelry, and stuff like that. So I assumed it was that. That was the whole thing was about. And said, no, this always happens like that. You fix it up, you come back 10 minutes later, it's the same way. So she continues on now. Now Carl came up behind us and gave a little explanation to him about it. And... uh she started leading me through the house to show me the other rooms and what was happening, the messes in the kitchen and other rooms where people might hide stuff and stuff like that, looking for, you know, wealth. And anyways, uh, again, not thinking much that, oh, somebody in the family's doing this stuff. Who else, you know? And I said, well, 
uh, a 10-year-old girl. Then I, I, we were introduced to Marcy. She was the uh, uh, daughter or goddaughter of, uh, of the woman who was showing us. And Mrs. That was, uh, who was her name now? Oh, oh good. Uh, Laura Gooden. And... Uh, her husband came out, Jerry, he came out with her also. And, uh, walked into us there and, uh, started telling us the story. Well, this went on for, so we just to the house and everything and other smaller things were happening, noises in different bedrooms and nobody in there and, uh, uh, stuff like that. A couple of this is falling, uh, that had been washed earlier in the morning, had fallen on the ground. And, uh, at that time, uh, Mr. Warren, he said, yeah, he says, this has been going on for quite a while. Well, at that time, we still assumed there was something new that would have been happening in the house. He says, no, he explained at the time that Marcy was an adopted, to, uh, adopted, uh, girl that they had gotten after their original son had passed away earlier I think at that time he couldn't have been more than six or seven years old and uh, these folks were kind of on the end of the earth the age system where it was easier it would be more difficult to for the, the, the job play a new uh, no, young born baby so they explained that Miss Goodna originally had been born in the Indian tribe up in Canada and spent most of her life there and that uh, to be sure that they were able to adopt a child they were suggested that she try to adopt a Canadian uh, baby from one of the Indian tribes which she did and succeeded and uh, by this time uh, the Marcy, the baby, she was already 10 years old, so she uh, would probably be the only person she ever knew as mother and father were the couple she was living with now. And uh, this went on, and uh, we were more left to uh, see the house, the rest of the house at uh, time. At this time, her... Uh, Green uh, 23, which was the car that should have been responsible for taking the call, arrived on scene to see what was going on. And uh, we got a call, or a call, I was told to call the police station on uh, the police radio and um, to find out what was, they wanted to, they were interested in what was going on. There's, dispatchers up there so I explained to him and uh, told him that the, uh, the assistant police car had arrived and uh, well we get back to him this time they told us be careful you make no reference to what call you're on or what's going on or any names over the police radio any correspondence that's going to follow up you need assistance or help or information you had to do it through a telephone, nothing over the air, so people could uh, 
listening in and getting nosing and start showing up. Uh, seemed at that time the gift that everybody wanted was a police radio, listening on to what was going on in town. Well, anyways, I, I said, uh, Carl, now to, uh, Paul George Wilson and Leroy Lawson, who were the new officers there, to follow them around, we'd show them around the house and explain what was going on. And, uh, we sort of left the rest of the company was there, the owner's home, and a few of the personal guests had started to arrive at the house. And they were in the kitchen. So we're going into the main bath, the uh, kitchen area first. It was the closest room. And uh, I'm not going to talk to the two officers. I'm trying to explain to them. I think this is a big, uh, come on, that's not, this stuff has not really happened. This, this is made to happen to attract attention and stuff. So I says, anything you see, you know, take with heart that it's probably a put on somehow that these must be very clever people. So now we're in the kitchen, and uh, the kitchen table was in the middle of the room, and the other two officers were uh, on the one side of the table. Oh, one of the three officers, my partner also was with them. And I was alone on one side of the table, explaining to all this, this is put on, don't believe what you see, uh, whatever. So, okay, all of a sudden, the officers are getting upset at me for talking. And they're trying to wave me off and kicking the table and stuff like that. I said, what's the matter? Come on. Believe me. It's a big put on. Turn point. Turn around. Turn around. And there it is right behind me. This huge white refrigerator, two-door refrigerator. He's just about a foot off the ground and sort of swaggering the way I'm shaking my hands and making noise and turning doing the same thing, imitating me. Okay, at that time, I just lasted maybe only 15 seconds at the time it settled down. And that was it. And I decided better shut up and say nothing more about it. <laughs> well, that went on and I said, come on, we're we're not just leaving here. We tried moving the, uh, the refrigerator around, seeing what was under it and so forth and so on, and couldn't find anything wrong with it. Well, uh, this stuff sort of kept going on, and uh, uh, small stuff like this. And folks, I guess some of their family have been notified that uh, stuff was happening, so they, they ran, arrived down at the Gooden's home to give their assistance and what they could. And uh, at this time, uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Gooden was, had been complaining that, uh, I guess it was that television set that fell down on uh, well, in front of me. It also happened to her same time, sometime during that morning, and that uh, that uh, it hit her foot and it was swollen up and it bothered her. She's jumping around. So I said at this time, well, you know, we have to get the uh, city ambulance down there. City ambulance in Bridgeport at that time had a, a regular, regular doctor working on it from uh, all shifts. 
not, not some kind of medical assistant or so. And it took some while to get, get, get them down there. And, uh, well, finally, we'll go on talk. And uh, I started walking around the house again uh, with a couple of officers. Somebody wanted to point out something to show me. And uh, we walked by uh, the living room where we earlier had seen uh, a marching and uh, uh, a couple of friends watching television from it. And uh, as we walked across the room, marching in a huge, Customs, uh, a chair, sofa, sleeper sofa, uh, with her sitting in it, holding a cat, came flying across the room from the other side, of the, well, the other side of the room where they were sitting, and stopped in front of me, and, you know, quickly, and the two almost fell out between the cat and her. So I said to her, wow, what a trick, how'd you do that? At that time, trying to get information from her, hope she'd say something wrong. And she says, I don't know, it just happened. And, uh, I so I tried to make conversation. I said, Ooh, who's the cat? I have a cat too. And she mentioned the name Scam and she says, that's the only friend I have. Nobody likes me. Nobody likes me at all. This is my friend. At, uh, that time, uh, her father who had seen the incident happen, and along with the, uh, one of the, I think it was Leroy, one of the police officers, had also caught on what was happening. And uh, her father stepped in between us and says, yeah, let me tell you about, let me tell you about her. And he stated how oh, earlier in the year after school had started, because now we're talking about we're at the end of uh, November, and that uh, while the child was walking to school, which was maybe only a three-block walk from uh, where her school was, and um, she was stopped by one of the kids from school, a boy, uh, a big boy who was sort of a, a brutal little, little kid, not picking on people, had stopped and beat her and says, you, you look ugly, you look funny. I guess between her Indian heritage, uh, she just carried around the look on her face and so forth. And uh, beat her up. And that kid actually wound up in the hospital for uh, that night and a couple of days later uh, due to the injuries. And she was afraid to go to school anymore because of this. And she wouldn't go to school. And, uh, well, anyways, father went on complaining, yeah, she's been keeping her home because she's afraid to go to school. We can't force her to go. And she's still going to the doctor for treatment to her injuries. Well, anyways, uh, settled down and father's again was saying how, you know, this something, something fairly new that was happening, but and it stood funny stuff like this started happening in the house too. And the child become more dependent on the family, you know, afraid of a lot of stuff. And at that time he was working in a factory in uh, Bridgeport. 
as either a lead man or a supervisor of some kind. And uh, he was started getting calls from home all the time. You have to come home. We, we can't handle this. You have, we need help. And uh, he would do that. And then if, I guess his co-workers knew somewhat of what was going on. And everybody was making fun of him and then stuff like that. And it became a, a problem all over. And uh, at this time, the ambulance case showed up and... Uh, did an examination of the, of the, the woman and said you know, she needed to go to the hospital where they could take some x-rays and stuff. And uh, she refused to leave to go with them. And uh, I got to the headquarters again, nobody uh, phoned that what was going on. And they said, well, just stay there. At, uh, well, now this was a weekend that... Uh, Sunday afternoon, and the ca- platoon captain, uh, I'm sick at that time because pro- the uh, patrol division normally had about 25 cars out on, uh, out on patrol during a normal shift. And this was two men and one man cars. And, uh, well, we had a substitute, uh, uh, lieutenant or a lower officer, then the kid, then the captain, uh, conduct lineup and roll call. And, uh, anyways, uh, where was the captain? He's a big shot to the the calls and the decisions. Well, he's down there in New Jersey watching the New York Giant football game. And, that kind of peed us off. Uh, here we are working Sunday, and he's watching a football game, probably three tickets. Well, uh, now a couple of sergeants who were also patrol district sergeants started showing up because there more information was getting to them from supervisors who were at work at the police station what was happening. And... Uh, now we're getting calls that what, what's happening. Our calls are being uh, on uh, one of New York stations, the radio stations, the 24-hour news stations in New York City, giving a uh, like a hour by hour, hour detail report of what's going on in Bridgeport, and that seemed to take importance for everybody. And uh, the cars started showing up from the area, New York area, and trying to find the address, and it became uh, out of hand a little bit, and the large crowds started detailing uh, outside the home. There were a couple hundreds at a time and thousands, and they had to shut down the streets from that area of town. And we were told just to stay there and you know, keep things under control. And at the same time, I had requested the ambulance to, to uh, the home. I asked that they send down the uh, a fire department so check the house for any dangerous conditions that may be on or maybe if anything was vandalized or purposely damaged or something that created another condition. And they did. Sent the one, one unit down, a large unit, Probably 
seven, eight uh, fire officers and also the fire chief himself showed up in his car. And uh, I explained to the chief uh, now what was happening, what people were claiming, what I uh, no, like the firemen to do while they were there is go through the house from top to bottom looking for dangerous stuff and also anything that shouldn't be there, like to set up things to happen like were happening, things being thrown around and noise and stuff like that, and which they did, you know, and particularly look around under and side and inside and outside that refrigerator to see if anything there was normal. And they did that, and uh, she come around you know, with me, and he says, whoops. And also the homeowner was there with the fire chief explaining to him what was here, what was there, what, you know, anything that might be wrong or whatever. And um, the fire chief comes up to me and in front of all, all his his people there, all his men told told the who was ever the uh, captain of the, the fire truck itself was there. He says, "I want all your men out of that house. I do not allow them to go in the house for any reason at all. If they try to send them home, they're finished here." Which he did, which kind of surprised me. Well, anyways, things went back in the house. A few more people showed up. There's some politicians try to use some excuses, but sort of police officers who let them walk in, walk around, and so forth and so on. And uh, I wouldn't let them do that. And they were kind of insinuating, no, doing their position with the city or state of Connecticut, so they should be the right to go in. And anyways, we turned them away, and we were told just to stay there to the end of the day. Well, and, Joe, uh, I'm going to have to pause you right there for a second, unfortunately. we got to take our, our uh, bottom-of-the-hour break here, but we'll we'll get right back to it in just a little bit. Okay. You're, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, with Matt Moniz as well, talking about... The Bridgeport Poltergeist case of 1974 with the only other surviving uh, witness besides my dad, Joe Tomek, and we will be right back. Introducing Bowling for Milk. Join your friends and neighbors at Walnut Hill Bowling Lanes on Sunday, December 10th from 2 to 5 p.m. for strikes, spares, and maybe a few gutter balls, but plenty of fun at Bowling for Milk. Just $25 gets you two strings of bowling and shoe rental, and the milk fun gets half. To add to the fun, we'll have a mini auction for just those in attendance, including an item donated by the New England Patriots. And ON Radio's cruising Bruce Palmer will be on hand to spin the tunes and sign autographs. The Patriots don't play that week, so join us for Bowling for Milk, Sunday afternoon, December 10th, from 2 to 5 p.m. at Walnut Hill. Bowl on Diamond Hill Road, Woonsocket. It's a party to help the milk fund. Local and live at 99.5 FM. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno featuring Matt Moniz. We are talking about the uh, Bridgeport Poltergeist case of 1974 with 
uh, retired police officer Joe Tomek, and uh, we 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 were talking, Joe, about um, or you were explaining to us, you know, the politicians are showing up, they're trying to get in. The police department pulled out, or sorry, the fire department pulled out. There's crowds forming in the street. The media is starting to get involved. Now, please please continue where you were. You were at the house after you know, turning away all the politicians. Well, I was set up this time. Uh, the uh, fire chief uh, also mentioned to me, he says, uh, uh, he wanted to know if it was okay if uh, I would direct uh, another priest in the house. And he explained that this priest uh, was a, a local priest from the closest uh, church. He was also in the fire department chaplain. So I said, sure, and of course, let him in. And someone went down to the rectory and picked up the police officer and brought him to the scene. I mean, brought the priest to the scene. And uh, he was given a tour of the building by the fire chief himself. And whatever, he looked around, spoke to me, and it was time for them to go. <clears throat> and he, uh, people started leaving, and he so he saw me, he said, Joe, come on in the room, I want to give you a blessing. And apparently he was blessing uh, other people in the building, officials and so forth. And I uh, said, no, that's not necessary. He said, oh, yeah, come on, you have to come in here. And he takes me to this little side room there where it's a sofa, another television set and stuff like that, a little personal room. And he says, okay, just stay here for a minute. And he reaches into his vest and takes out a little bottle of holy water and uh, a little uh, prayer book with some prayers in it, I guess they use for officiating stuff and stuff, you know, events and stuff like that. And he puts it on the table in front of him, on the coffee table in front of him, while he sits down looking for some other stuff. And uh, he reaches over to pick up the bottle of holy water and just Hurts away to the other by itself to the other side of the coffee table. And uh, again, he looks and makes a face and reaches over again to on the other side of the coffee and then skirts away to the other side all by itself. And just probably moving a distance of two and a half feet or so, just out of his reach. So again, he goes and reaches, reaches back towards me. So I go to get it for reach and get it for him to give it to him and he goes don't touch it don't touch it leave it alone apparently at this time he gets the holy water and does his uh sacramental thing or whatever they call it a blessing and stuff and uh well <laughs> again uh yeah at this time i was thinking you know this is all real now. What's happening? This isn't. This isn't a put-on thing because things that were happening, uh, people will never. Quite, I would tell you, you probably have scientists and musicians and stuff trying to cause something to happen like this, but you couldn't unless you were a real show person or something. And. Uh, Again, I said, well, during the time, the other supervisors who had come to the house and before they left to, to be, 
Yo, write a good report. Make it a good report, which meant don't fool around with it. Just for everything that happens in it. Uh, something like this, a lot of times you, stuff that would become public, you, you keep it for more personal use, let them know. Because again, by this time, I was, we were ready to go home. Again, our relief car, it would have taken us just at the end of the shift. It was uh, not available because we still had it at the scene of the original call, and there were no spare cars that they could use to come out. So we had to wait for them to get a ride, the relief crew, come in and take, us, take over for us. And uh, so we arrived back at the police station probably close to 5 o'clock, 5.30 versus 3.30, and uh, this particular day, it was uh, November uh, 25th or so, it was my daughter's birthday, and they were having uh, her birthday party, which they expected me to be at, and I was tied up here at this other call. So we were impatient to get home, get dressed, and attend the party. And I was thinking at this time, you know, this is something that... The, Police department or anybody else is going to be able to hide or deny what's happening or so. Too many witnesses. Mm. And, um, so this was the last day of a uh, day shift that we're on and we would be off for three days before coming back, uh, on the, uh, evening shift, afternoon shift. So I said, well, before all my notes and everything that I had been taken, the past, I said, I'm going to, write the report at home where I had a wife who could type it out for me rather than me picking pack trying to make make the thing go. And then wrote out a report and put in exactly what I, I wanted to, regardless. Okay, well, three days later, I, I show, show up for the second shift roll call, and here's my captain up here who's at the football game. He hasn't known what's been going on, and... I imagine, well, when we left the scene, New York television stations and other television stations were already on the scene with their, their trucks and their towers, you know, transmission towers up, and they were making reports, doing, shooting the pro, uh, what was happening live, you know, their news programs. So again, I said, too many people involved are with the knowing what's going on. I made a good report. Well, after roll call, the captain says, okay, you guys, he named four of us in my, in my room after roll call. So we go in there and I, I had, since I had, he said, I want to make a report, so I want him. So, well, we, I already had my report ready because I was going to be the one who was responsible for the main reports of the, the, handling that call. I gave it to him. He reads it. He looks at it and says, you don't expect me to accept that, do you? I said, no, sir. I, I really didn't because normally you wouldn't turn something in like that. Well, like I said, too many witnesses. Uh, so I said to him, I said, no, sir, I'll change the report. I'll make a new report. But you tell me what to say and what I can't say. At that time, he just kind of blew his top, threw me out of the office, Wore me out on patrol, and that was it. 
and I, at that time, I heard nothing more about it. And uh, I said, no, this is too important case, the type of case to be, you know, for them to just trash it, you know, hide the thing. And, uh, well, eventually I says, there, there has to be some kind of story coming out because the whole thing about it to me was, you know, here was this 10-year-old kid and things like this are never really happening. Where if they were happening, when the parents were, were advised at that time, well, take the child to your uh, doctor, your family doctor or child's doctor, explain what's happening and you know, see if they could help you or advise you. And at that time, just nobody is no small city outside New York City, or 60 miles from New York City, and there was never heard of a doctor that type around here and i said this is happening probably all over quite often because this find out later from the experts and other doctors that this is a common thing that a lot of especially children female children that were experiencing it had experiences so and you know it was a real thing that needed to be looked at to see what what was might have been real real happenings and what was created happenings, false things that they claimed a lot, all kids went through this at one time in life or not. And uh, I Joe, was more concerned about the them washing down and saying this was a medical type thing. Joe, did you mention what happened to you when you were alone in the house? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, just before we uh, left the house to be relieved by the... Uh, uh, other squad, I said, I wanted to go through the house one more time to make sure she made sure everything was still okay in its place. And, uh, while, and make sure all the doors were locked, the windows were locked and closed. Uh, no one had been in that house since I had left there. I wanted to make the inspection of the house before I was going to leave the house. And, uh, uh, just before I left the house, uh, I'm trying to say no, well, I'm saying, okay, now this is really happening. I pulled, it was, it was real, it was more like a joke or thing. I said, okay, I kindly said quietly, okay, if you're in here, uh, because nothing was out of place in that room or anything at this time. I mean, it says, make something happen. Well, on the dresser next to the door, there was this game-type board, board game of some kind, with uh, sort of the size of a checkerboard, but not, not a checkerboard for sure, or little figurines of plastic dolls or maybe metal dolls or figurines, like square dancing type figures as you see. Well, they all started jumping around, dancing around on that board. And uh, I said, okay, you can stop now. And immediately they stopped. And I made a, an apology to who was ever in that room, caused all this to happen. And I apologized that 
You people are real. I wish you had a hundred more. Please forgive us. So, there. And I will always remember this and say, you, you people, whether you be ghost from ghost, from heaven or hell or whatever, you're real. And you, I would spread that information that, yeah, this stuff really does happen. And not for all doctors and other people, radio broadcasters and television broadcasters and guests that they usually have in their programs, that's the stuff. No, just don't write off everything. Investigate before you call on everything a hoax. Mm. And that was mainly a big part of my, uh, I put a lot of that stuff in that book. And I, I wouldn't change a word in that book. They would have to order me to do it, and they would take responsibility. So what was your... And finally, and finally, and finally you know, and I have to mention this, that years later, a uh, neighbor of theirs, a childhood neighbor of the family from that time who passed the house every day, got a hold of me, found some, by this time, this was 40 years later, 40, more than 40 years later, said, did that stuff really happen? And explained why, and he was now a... Uh, a part-time writer and stuff that, yeah, I did. And he was trying to convince himself and whatever, because he knew also knew the people, or knew the child at least at that time, because they would have been at the same age. And uh, yeah, and I said, I kept one piece of report, which police officers are supposed to, at the end of the career, get rid of everything, but I kept one. And, uh, he said, "Can you send it to me?" And that that uh, that that's a letter that's still out there in some, several of the books and programs, and uh, that's what just kind of started the whole thing off. Where people, again, people now is became interested, and that's where we, I guess we are today. Mm. So let me ask you this, Joe. What was your experience with Ed and Lorraine Warren and and my dad as well? What was what were your first impressions, and, and how did that sort of unfold? Again, this was to me it was it was planned. I mean, the people I have to explain this when Ed and Lorraine Warren, uh, uh, the priest involved, and uh, a couple others involved. I, I think. Uh, well, when they showed up, apparently somebody had made a call when they're calling the police at the same time. I mm. uh, made a phone call to the Warrens and saying, yeah, stuff's going on at the house. And all these people were up at the house at that, that day uh, for some outing they were having, a meeting about stuff that was going on. And the house was in a couple of towns over from Bridgeport. So they all showed up and went... This was like closer to 2 o'clock when they were showing up. And like I said, we had been there since noontime at the time. And uh, it was like a parade walking in through the front door. You know? And I had the feeling that no, they had been there before. Uh, I mean, they, they, they looked too comfortable just walking in like a, a, a six-man parade. We're going right to the kitchen where... 
the Goodens were fitted with the, the guests that showed up earlier, I guess brother and stuff and everything. Well, there was another thing that says, well, this was when we first appeared at the house and um, uh, Mr. Gooden was talking about the you know, problems they were having in the house and he had said, you know, this had been going on for more than just today. It's been going on for uh, maybe months. He said that the the, uh, this was on Saturday. He says things had gotten so bad in the house with things being set, and uh, he figured it was dangerous for everybody there. So he had to get get the people out of the house. He, he was afraid to stay there for the night. And uh, he says I took him up to uh, West Point, and I think of West Point. Why why you bring the ten year old up to West Point? And I later found out. Well, this is where. His brother lived, a uh, little town, whatever West Point was located at. And uh, he said they had to come back on that Sunday because they were concerned what was happening at the house and also they never missed Mass on Sunday, church and Mass. And they got there and they found the house destroyed and everything in it. And they said, okay, I guess time to uh, get the police involved. And there's also another point that when we were first there and I was looking around the, uh, the outside of the home and the homes next to us, he was kind of popular again. A fellow who lived across the street from him, he was also a, uh, a police officer and he had lived there for all the life and knew those people. Uh, John Hellsworth, I think it was his name was at the time. He says, Joe. Whatever you see here is really, it's really happening. These are good people. They're not fools. They're not into any kind of stuff there. I've known them and the kids since they lived there since they've been little baby. And they said, this really happens here. So don't let anybody pers persuade you it doesn't happen here. And I said, thank you very much. And, you know, never really got back so many times because we were different squads and there would be, Really, whenever we crossed, uh, cross, cross each other again. So that kind of reinforced me. And apparently he kept it private, his private business, neighborhood business, and never got the police involved with it at any time until then, as far as I know. Well, there were four of us who arrived about two o'clock, uh, Father Bill Charbonneau, and on the raid board, and me, I remember you were one of the first people I, I met, Joe. Yeah. And I come to that time, you were still wearing your collar. Because you, you explained to me that you were a student up with her at the seminary. I was in regular street clothes, but I was a student for the priesthood. So, yeah. Uh, Father Bill was in his collar. Similar so whatever happened though. to him? Did he ever make any... I, I'm sure to his supervisors at the time, did he ever make any reports on? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Nothing major. Yeah, because like didn't, I they, say, you know, uh, didn't they get in touch with the Bishop of Bridgeport 
What well, actually was is Prickford oh, yeah. diocese? Yeah, and they they tried to authorize yeah, an exorcism, you know. I believe. Correct. Yes. Never heard back. <laughs> oh, look at it now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. One question I'd like to know from you, Joe. Uh, uh, from this case, what was the biggest impact it had personally to you? Uh, just don't everything you hear is something at some point believe that investigate it as being a true fact or so before you just throw it in the trash or something like that. No matter how ridiculous it sounds or whatever, because now you you find as history goes on, you're finding out that the, these people who go around, uh, I don't know, become crazy or crazy or stuff or wind up shooting people and, uh, uh, killing people and they've been mentioned for years or so that they're going to do something like that. Some of them wind up doing it. Hmm. Well, on a, on a similar, similar note, we, we received uh, a question from a listener, uh, a, someone who writes in to us a lot, uh, Phil from Savannah, um, who asked us, which you might be able to input on this, Joe, but um, essentially the question goes as, uh, I always wondered, what happened to Marcia in the years after the ordeal? Uh, I read that she went back to Canada when she was 18. Has anybody been able to track her down? Uh, what a fascinating what a fascinating interview that would be. As far as I know, no. I I've consistently, since that day, tried to find everything I could read about the case and her and nothing. Again, uh, by this time, uh, I guess from the scene or whatever, she was taken to uh, uh, somebody on a higher level, doctor level, for examination. And uh, if every, I'm sure reports were made of it and they exist somewhere. Especially, I find out in other states, probably Connecticut too, that any child or so under a certain age who's taken a mental exam is requested of her for certain reasons that the state had to make out a report of it. And if this was a state doctor or a state associate place or so, that there are reports about it. Mm. Also, Again, this is a 10-year-old child at the school uh, reporting. Well, she had to go to school someplace. If she was brought to a Catholic school or whatever, uh, public school, Board of Education has to have reports on, well, throughout her time in school, what school she went to, what addresses she lived at. And at, at some point, she had to graduate from the high school, so there had to be a yearbook of her, uh, you know, like the kids making with each other at the end of the year, with friends in it, and so I said, her background just didn't disappear. She also had a driver's license in place, and maybe a marriage license in place, where and credit cards in some place were the places she lived, and I don't know, you know, a good reporter who was interested in the case never had the knowledge of how to follow up on it. You know, 
there's always some computer nerd someplace who's always able to crash into this computer system to get this kind of information. Well, she died. Well, yeah, that was how many, that was how many years later? Mm. Mm. The last reports we have her, she's 10 years old. So she lived another 30 years doing someplace, living someplace, being married, working someplace, having some kind of record behind her. Well, her birth date would have put her around 1982-83, being 18. That then she would have become an adult at some point and have graduated yeah. school. So yeah, there, come, there should be some kind of record. Maybe college, too. Yeah. Yeah, someplace. And, well, uh, she I died. In 2015, at the age of 51, in Ohio. Okay. Uh, I'm saying there's a trail someplace. Mm. Maybe she's uh, maybe she's right there in Bridgeport, uh, listening to us right now. Well, if she died no, in 2015, then she there would be a death record, and that would have her social security number, so you can track backwards that information if you wanted to. It's true. We'd have to go to, um, according to this article you sent me, Dad, the, the, there was a coroner's uh, report um, that, said, that I think was from Richland, Richland County in Ohio that, that, deta- yep. that details um, a, little, a little bit of, of what's going on there. But she was pronounced dead of natural causes um, on February 10th of 2015 at Med Central Hospital in Shelby. Okay, so, that's a starting So, point. I mean... Yeah, I mean, we could all, we could always go back from there, but apparently she changed her name. Well, sort of changed her name. So instead of going by Marcia, she it was you know, Marcia, also known as Marcia. So a little little alias thrown in there. Maybe that that has something to do with it too. But uh, we are indeed out of time. But thank you for being with us today, Joe. It's it, it's it's wonderful wonderful talking to you again. Um, and it's your your thoroughness with how you explain everything. It just is amazes me. You know, each beat, it's just, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's really impressive. And I, I really appreciate the detail because as someone who appreciates context, it's incredibly important. Uh, so thank you for being with us, Joe. Really, really, really appreciate it. I congratulate you for putting the show on. Uh, I say this is something that you just don't throw away. And again, again, these things you remember forever. <laughs> One of those things. Yeah, no, exactly. Oh, yeah. So I guess we'll we'll start off with our announcements here. So we'll uh, we'll we'll keep you on the line here, Joe, if you if you want. We'll say our say our goodbyes in a little bit. Um, so to okay. learn learn more about uh, the Bridgeport Poltergeist, uh, we refer you to the world's most haunted house by William J. Hall and our 2017 book Behind the Paranormal: Everything You Know Is Wrong. And there are a number of great books by our friend Nick Redfern as well uh, for sale temporarily at DowserSoutheast.com/slash Greater New England UFO Conference. Uh, there's also a link on the homepage of BehindTheParanormal.com. And visit that website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly 1,200 hours of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio, uh, Achieve Radio, and here on WOON AM and FM. 
Also hear many of the other great broadcasts here from my major broadcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And that does it, folks. So we'll catch you next time on Return Behind to this the Radio Frequency, 167 hours from now. For 